Today we read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Let's pray. Lord, we love you deeply, and our souls thirst for your sanctification. We are all awash in uh, brokenness and hurt, every one of us. It's in us, and it's all around us. And yet we have you here and now in this room. So, Lord, be with us in this moment, in this presence. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your holy word. We pray for Pastor Aaron, that you would bless him with the wisdom to understand your word and the words to provide that message to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, good morning, IBC family. How are we doing? I know it's kind of an open-ended question, but really, how are we doing? Thank you. <laughs> Glad that one of us, or two of us, are doing awesome. <laughs> You know, the last couple of weeks, I'm, uh, as I was kind of reminiscing how, uh, you know, just from one weekend to the next, it seems like uh, the, the mode or the rhythm, and I know Pastor Corey and Pastor Tom can relate to this well, is just like it's Sunday afternoon, next Sunday's already coming, you know, in our minds, and so you're always kind of like, okay, put a period or exclamation mark on that one and going right to the next thing, but thankfully the last couple of weeks we've been uh, incredibly blessed to have some guest speakers, uh, and I'm so thankful that uh, we all had the opportunity to sit under some faithful teaching and to uh, just to really have our hearts stirred 
uh, for the things that matter to God. And so I'm very grateful for that. But um, I'm back in the pulpit now, and we're continuing on in our our passage, our, our series, really through the, the book of Genesis. And as our elder Neil Penso read for us, we're in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. Before I even jump into the passage, I kind of want to begin it in this way. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about some of you. But, uh, but uh, if you're at least uh, to some degree like me, there, there, there's this kind of this, uh, I, I get reminded of this constantly, how every time I'm in a conversation, especially when I'm relating a story, uh, you could be telling someone about an event that happened, an experience that you had, and someone else could also be sharing the same event or experience, and it comes out very differently. Has anybody, do you know what I'm talking about? Let me, let me just kind of like unpack that even more thoroughly. Um, especially in the context between two spouses, uh, you can uh, relate a story very differently, right? One of the things that Abby and I like to do, though she usually poses the question is, you know, we're at the dinner table, maybe we have somebody over, and the, one, the question she's always eager to ask is, so how did you meet? right? The how did you meet question, right? And of course, you know, the, the couple usually looks at one another and, and, uh, and it's kind of like, you're going to go first, you're going to go first, you're going to go first. And then it's always kind of like, all right, you tell your version and then sh- they'll tell their version and we'll see how the, the details kind of match up or complement one another, right? Um, and when Abby and I talk about how we met, um, she retells every detail of the account I usually kind of just bottom line, I saw her, I wanted her, <laughs> let's make it happen, you know, and, uh, and with some filler between, you know. <laughs> Actually, when I, when I called my uh, father-in-law, now father-in-law, on the way to L.A., and I was actually with my sister-in-law, uh, almost sister-in-law, Rachel, and so she was like, we called to go, hey, I was asking for blessing, and I was going to fly up there. I'm like, hey, this is uh, Aaron. And he's like, who's Aaron? I'm like, the guy that's pursuing your daughter and wanting to marry your daughter. <laughs> it did happen very quick. That's another time. We'll have you over, and we'll share that story. <laughs> Abby will share her version. I'll share my version. In fact, one time, we were reminiscing about a date that we had before we got married, and, and we're just kind of like, oh, remember when it all kind of started right here? And Abby's like, yeah, remember I was wearing that red dress? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, how could I forget <laughs> that red dress? That was a detail I definitely made sure to remember. <laughs> so anyways, the point I'm getting at is this. Even when two people are describing this exact same event, the objective might be very different from one person to the next, and the details that are chosen or remembered are very different from one person to the next. And I believe that I say that as a way of kind of transitioning back into our text here this morning in Genesis chapter 2, because in Genesis 1, we learned that God created, right? He spoke it, and he created. We're, we're supposed to get this idea or the The impression that we're supposed to get uh, when we walk away from Genesis 1 is that God spoke. He says, here's my idea. This is what I want. Boom. I said what I wanted, and now it is so. It's a matter of fact. And then we get to Genesis 2, and there's a very different kind of tenor that is presented to us. 
In Genesis chapter 2, even though it's, it, it, it kind of comes across a little differently, and so even though Moses is the same author, both of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and even though it's the same Holy Spirit inspiring the words given to Moses, we see they are two different kinds or vantage points of the same creation account. Now, it is common for some people today to say, hey, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two very different creation accounts. Uh, and um, I don't actually agree with that, but some people propose a two different uh, creation accounts altogether. And some will even say that Genesis 2 is all figurative. Uh, it should not be taken literally, so therefore you shouldn't take it seriously in the same way. But I believe that careful reflection upon uh, both Genesis 1, especially in contrast to Genesis 2, reveals a distinct but complementary focus between these two chapters. So for example, Genesis 1 takes a very broad look at creation. It tells us how everything came into being, the stars, the moon, the sun, the planet, the weather systems, the water, the earth, the animals, the the birds, the fish in the sea, all that is given to us in a very broad and quick you know, snapshot, day one, day two, day three. Everything went from nothing to everything that we see and observe and experience and, and even enjoy to this day. God spoke it and it happened. But then in Genesis 2, it kinda, the brakes kind of get pressed a little bit, right? In Genesis 2, we slow way down and we have a more detailed look at creation, especially or most specifically a look at the sixth day of creation, and it points to our uh, uh, kind of points our attention to the human race with the specific intent to help us understand something incredibly important. What is that incredibly important truth or principle that you and I are supposed to understand? It is to be able to answer confidently who we are. Who are we? What is the purpose of our existence? What is the meaning of our existence? Why are we here? And so on one hand, Genesis 1 says, yes, God created everything at the spoken word of his mouth, but in Genesis 2, it it really kind of hones in our focus to people. And it's why verse 4, if you look at your Bibles in Genesis 2, verse 4, it it starts out, and these are the generations, or this is the account. In fact, this happens 11 times throughout the book of Genesis, uh, really indicating uh, sections of the, of the Genesis. Again, Hebrew does not have the same kind of grammar. They didn't split it up in chapters and verses that happened much later. The way Hebrew kind of compartmentalized or there was known beginning and ending to segments was in this way. It's called a toledoth. It's, a, it's really a way to start out going, hey, here's another section. Here's another transition. These are the generations. These are, this is the account. And it's all focused on people. One thing that you and I, as followers of Jesus, need to continually come back to as a necessary point of reference is this, is that Genesis, and continuing all the way to, through the book of Revelation, is all about one predominant focus. And that predominant focus from Genesis all the way to Revelation is this, it, life is all about God. It's all about God. It always has been. It always will be. And the moment we make it anything other than that, that's why we have problems. Now, 
There's a kind of a, a sublayer to that. Life is all about God. The meaning of life is all about God, but specifically, life is all about our relationship that exists between Creator God and His most prized possession or creation, which is people. So when you think about it, you get right when you get to Genesis 2, it really centers in on this is what it's all about. Yes, God created everything. We kind of got, we established that framework. We got the table of contents set. And now we jump into all the details of everything. And it begins with how God relates to people or how people relate to God all the way through eternity future. And so from the beginning, Genesis establishes what this relationship with God is supposed to look like, as well as reveals our function or our purpose, what we do as God's image bearer. And so this morning, we're going to actually just kind of focus on two different things here, two different points. We're going to talk about what it means to live in relationship with God. And secondly, we're going to talk about Adam's function in the Garden of Eden before Eve. Now, I say before Eve because I'm going to devote an entire message to what a biblical understanding of marriage is next week, and I wanted to have enough time to really unpack that for us, so we stopped at verse 17 by, per, by design. Next week, we will go into verse 18 to the end of the chapter when Eve comes on the scene. But this morning, two main points, and I want to, ask, I want to really answer this first question, what does it mean to live in relationship with God, especially as, a, as observed through the person Adam. What does it mean to live in relationship with God? I think before we actually jump into what it means to live in relationship with God, I think it's hugely important that we understand and even, and, and that even more so accept that the God of creation is also the God of relationship. The God of creation is also the God of relationship who created you and me to live in relationship with himself. Maybe I can state it this way to make it, to really drive the point home a little more fully. To be human not only means to bear God's image, but it means to live and to rule and to work alongside God in a relationship that is defined by love. To be human means to live and to rule and to work alongside God in a relationship that is defined by love. In fact, it's safe to say to live your life or to live our life outside of relationship with God is to live a life in a manner that is inconsistent with your design and purpose as a human being. Are you tracking with me? To be human means to live and to function and to rule and to co-labor with our creator, God Almighty. And to live a life outside of that relationship is to live a life inconsistent with your design and purpose. It's been quoted many times. I've quoted it many times, but I still think it's very appropriate. St. Augustine says it this way, our hearts will always be restless until they find their rest in thee. 
Your heart will always be restless, unfulfilled, unsatisfied until it finds, until you find your rest in God. The fact is, brothers and sisters, you and I were created by God and for God. This is really what Sabbath is all about. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about Sabbath, the seventh day. Sabbath is all about pursuing relationship with God. Yes, it is a cessation of work, right? It's a stopping, but the stopping of work is really only a means by which you and I can more effectively foster a relationship with our Creator. And when you think about it in these terms, even our gospel mandate, right, to go and make disciples of all nations, what that really means is, yes, we're making disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? It's helping people understand that they were created from the beginning to live and to function and to work in relationship with their creator. Sometimes we can get so confused with Christianese, right? We can throw out terms and, and it's like, oh yeah, this is what it's all about. And it may be true, but to really understand it in, the kinda, in its most simplistic and foundational sense, we are helping people understand you were created by God and for God to live and to rule and to co-labor with your creator. And one of the ways in which we know that is true is by how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 changes, especially in regards to its reference to God. You see, in Genesis 1, and we've talked about this before, but we're going to really kind of bring extra emphasis to it this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, the name for God is Elohim. The name for God is Elohim, which really speaks to his creative power and his majesty. It talks about just God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's unlimited by anything he wants to do. Whatever he thinks, whatever he says, it is done. He is Elohim. In Genesis 2, on the other hand, the name for God changes to Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, which speaks to his relational presence. Now, at first read, this observation may not mean much to us, right? In fact, even in your Bibles, you would not have made that connection because you're not reading from Hebrew like Corey is. Uh, You're reading from an English translation, and so therefore, you're kind of going like, I see God, or I see Lord God. Is it really, you know, it's half a dozen of one, half a dozen of another. Is it really any different? Actually, it is. You see, in Genesis 1, Elohim is intended to communicate something much very profound and powerful and majestic about who God is. But in Genesis 2, we see that God is uh, is Yahweh Elohim. You know, as a kid, though this may be a lost art form now, but and maybe not in some of your families, but as a kid, I was taught to address adults by Mr. and Mrs. Anybody else? Taught that, or you learned by not doing that? <laughs> yeah, it's like when you talk to an adult, you say, it's Mr. So-and-so, or it's Mrs. So-and-so. And it went, again, why I was taught that was this is a kind of a term of respect. It's a title or a reference to communicate respect. In other words, I'm not just to go like, hey, what's up, what's up? You know, it's like, no. 
We, as a kid especially, you're going, hey, there's adult figures above you and you need to show them respect. This is one of the ways that you can show respect to somebody. And we do this in our culture as a whole, right? We, uh, you know, in, in Congress, right? It's Madam Speaker or Mr. Speaker. And when they present the president, it's the president of the United States of America. It's not Joe Schmo. You know, or whatever it is. It's, there's titles. In the military, it's the same way. It's colonel, it's lieutenant, it's private, it's, it's captain. There are names and designations. It's professor so-and-so, it's doctor so-and-so. These are all terms of respect. But when you refer to someone by their first name, it communicates something different. It communicates a sense of closeness, intimacy, It communicates a depth of relationship. To give you a contrasting example of that, I remember when I was uh, in college in the student center, there was a seat that I was walking up to, kind of a bench. One guy was sitting there in a suit. I could tell he wasn't a student, and uh, but I didn't recognize recognize him as a professor. And so, uh, but there was one seat I needed to sit down, and I was doing something I can't remember. But I just walked up and said, "Hey, buddy, can I sit here?" and and just sit down and get do something. And he says, yeah, you can sit there, but I'm not your buddy. That's what he told me. And I said, oh. What he communicated very clearly is, we're not, we're not buddies. We're not hanging out. It's like, yes, you can sit here, but I'm not your buddy. We're not close. There's no intimacy. There's no, uh, like, we don't even know each other. In fact, I don't even know. He probably thinking, I don't even know if I want to know you at this point. Uh, after saying that, uh, he made it very clear, like, there's a separation of sorts. But when you call someone by their first name, it, it, it kind of bridges the gap. It brings it closer. It's like, oh, all of a sudden, like, there's a, there's a, a, a quality of relationship that we have. I mean, I love when I refer to Pastor Tom. I say Pastor Tom for you, but I call him Broski, <laughs> just so you know. He's Broski. That's, his, that's my name for him, you know? And, uh, and again, it's a term of endearment in a lot of ways because I'm going like, yeah, we're, we're co-laborers together. We are fellow pastors, and I have an incredibly high respect for him. But at the same time, there's also a relationship that exists where it's like, he's broski in my mind. We, we, we are brothers in arms, and, we, and same thing with Pastor Corey as well. It's like there's a, there's a closeness that the, we get to share with one another. Here's what I'm getting at. Referring to someone by their title shows respect for rank and status in society, but referring to someone by their first name communicates a closeness and an intimacy for that person. <laughs> I was just thinking this this morning. Uh, Abby and I have all kinds of names for one another. Good names, by the way. Not, not uh, you know, we say, you know, I call her babe all the time. Our kids joke with us all the time. I'm like, hey, babe, hey, babe. You know, because we're like, hey, babe. But when Abby says Aaron, my first name, it's like, oh, something wrong. <laughs> you just called me by my first name. That usually only happens when you really need to get my attention about something. And so, uh, so we even are like even a step further beyond names. Now we have these little pet names that we have for one another and stuff. And that's how we relate to one another because of the intimacy that we have and the closeness that we share with one another. The same is true when we look at God's name in Genesis chapter 2. 
You see, in Genesis 1, God is Elohim, which is derived from the, the word meaning to fear, referring to God as the highest being to be feared. In fact, I'm going through Joshua right now, and I'm at the very end of Joshua. Joshua has just led the people of Israel into the promised land. They're taking conquest of the land. They're removing all the kings and all the other, other nations that are uh, existing at that time. And here they understand the God of Israel as one to be feared. They all feared Israel's coming in and their God apparently is not one you can mess with. That's the God they understand or the God they kind of know or relate to. But in Genesis 2, God is now Yahweh, which is the personal name for God, especially as the covenant God of Israel. You might be asking, so what? What's, what's, what's the significance of that. The significance is this, that God wants you and me to relate to him on a personal level in an intimate way. Yes, on one hand, he is God to be feared. Don't mess with him. And on the other hand, he says, but I love you. And I want you to relate to me in a way that no other person or created being can you see, it's interesting to note that even when you look throughout, when you observe his ministry, Jesus was helping people understand and relate to God as, guess what? Father. Before Jesus, no one related to God as Father, but then Jesus comes on the scene and he helps us understand who is God? God is your Father. Jesus even says that in John 15 that we are friends of God if we do what he says. The Apostle Paul also in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, he says that the Spirit of God, the Spirit that indwells all followers of Jesus, the Spirit of God cries out within us, Abba, Father, which means Daddy. It's not just biological dad, it's this relational Father, one who loves you and everything about you. The point is this, while God has no equal, and while he is the sole creator of all things, which should instill a sense of awe and fear and wonder and respect, he, is also, he also created you to live in a unique and special relationship with himself. That's who creator God is. That's how he feels towards you. It makes me wonder or ask this question. Does this description of God match your perspective of God? Does this resonate with how you think God thinks about you? Does this resonate with how you feel God feels toward you? Or let me just make it very blunt. Do you think that God actually loves you? Now, the good Christian response would be, yeah, we know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But what we know and what we believe sometimes are two very different things. 
We may know what we ought to believe. The question is, what do you actually believe? Do you actually believe that God loves you? What does John, one of his disciples, tell us in John chapter 3? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. See how much God loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. I love what John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You know, you, you see the, the, the extra emphasis that are added in those verses. It's not, it's not just God loves, but God so loved. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children. I wonder, do you believe that about God? Or more importantly, do you believe and, and accept and know that God feels that way toward you? So in Genesis 1, we get this snapshot. This is God Elohim. He is creator God. But in Genesis 2, God invites us in. He basically sits us on his lap, so to speak, and says, and this is how it continued. Let's talk. Let me share with you all that I did and will continue to do. There's no distance, but he bridges the gap and says, you can call me daddy. You can call me Yahweh. You can call me my first name basis. That's the kind of relationship I want to have with you. And we see that this special relationship is also seen in how humanity was created, right? Yes, God formed the animals and humanity out of the dust of the earth, right? I love the imagery even then, as I said before, in Genesis 2, everything kind of slows down, right? Genesis 1, everything is just like God said it and, it, and it was so. But in Genesis 2, we have language of not just spoke things into existence, but now God formed things into existence, in other words, it has the imagery of a potter to clay, right? An artisan at work, someone who's taking their time. They're not just shooting from the hip here. They're not just kind of quickly throwing out something, but God is taking meticulous time and, and, and showing great detail in what he's creating because God loves everything he creates, especially the human race. And we see ultimately that God breathes the breath of life into the human race. No other creation, no other living animal or being has that kind of status, but the human race, God breathed the breath of life. The special relationship is also observed in how God provided a special home for Adam and obviously later Eve called the Garden of Eden, right? This garden is literally translated paradise. I don't know what what image comes to your mind when you think paradise? There's not a whole lot of description given in Revelation. I think Rivendale, Lord of the Rings, that's kind of like the imagery I get, right? You kind of like walk through and you have these waterfalls and you're like, oh, you know, it's just like, it's like, wow, this is amazing, you know? And it's like, God created a Garden of Eden. Now, what's interesting about this, this is a paradise. This isn't just kind of basic habit, habitable. This isn't like fifth wheel living. This is mansion living, right? 
every, God pulls out all the stops, every luxury possible. He already created a world that was habitable, habitable so that all life could flourish and live and multiply. He already created a world for that, but then he creates a special place called the Garden of Eden and places Adam and brings Eve later. And is like, this is a special home in which God and humans are going to commune with one another. In other words, God's going like, I didn't have to do this. I wasn't obligated to make this, but I love you. Let me show you how much I love you. You know, it's very interesting. It's easy to spend money on people you love, right? Right? (laughs) Or at least serve them, right? (laughs) It's easy to do that because you love them and you want to show love. It's not something you have to like, okay, I'll figure out a way to do it. It just comes naturally. Speaking of like how you met conversation, it was easy to think of ways to try to love my future wife and now wife because I, I, all I was thinking about was like I wanted to bless her. I wanted to show how I felt toward her. That's how God relates to us. He wants to show you. like, I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to create this garden. It's going to be paradise on earth. It is the garden of Eden. It's going to be perfect. And I'm not holding, I'm not I'm not going to withhold anything. It is going to be the best of the best. Think five-star luxury hotel here. It is going to be awesome. What does James tell us? Every good and every perfect gift comes from above. God loves to bless those whom he loves. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. He loves you. I think one of the I think one of the more common ways in which the enemy seeks to deceive and destroy and to take us out is to help you forget or to start doubting that God actually loves you. Because you see in the context of love struggle relational struggle difficulties, trials, tribulations of various kinds, they're all perceived differently in the context of divine love. But outside of that relationship, they're also perceived very differently. You feel alone. You feel ashamed. It's all on you at this point. But in the context of divine love, you can navigate through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, Psalm 23 tells us. Why? Because he is with us. Why is he with us? Because he loves us. If there's one thing, you forget everything else, please know this, that God has created you to be in relationship with you to live your life, to foster and to pursue that intimacy, to know your identity. Outside of that relationship, it's identity crisis and death. But in the context of that love relationship, it is life and joy and peace. That is what Genesis 2, amidst all the other details, is really communicating to us. There's a second question. In the context of divine relationship, 
because that is our identity, is to live in relationship with our Creator. Then the question is, what do we do? Do we just sit idly by? Did Adam, did Adam just sit in paradise going, man, sitting on the beach, this is great, perpetually? No, actually God gave Adam something to do. He gave something to do. He actually told Adam, like, Adam, I've actually created you to commune with me, to have a perfect, intimate relationship with your creator, but I've also created you to work. Yes, Adam was created to work. Now, in our day and age and in our context, in our Western context, we sometimes go, work is just that. It is a four-letter word that we don't really jump up and down about, right? Work is one of those things that we go, ah, we have to do it. It's a necessary evil in our minds, perhaps. But Adam was created to work. It's not something that just, he just had to do. It's something he was, was able to do. Now, of course, we'll get to this in a little bit. When sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, one of the repercussions of their rebellion was not just that sin entered, not just that they would eventually die physically, but that work would be hard. It would be laborsome. It would be wearisome. It wouldn't be fun anymore. But actually, God created us to work hard and to truly enjoy our work. From the very beginning, God's intention is that we would co-rule and co-labor with him to steward his creation and to guard his creation. And so we need to understand that work is a good thing. Some of you older folks in here, I don't need to convince you. Some of you younger folks maybe need a little more convincing. I'm not saying that you're not a hard worker. I'm not saying that that is your perspective necessarily. And I'm not going to overgeneralize the, the Generation Z uh, uh, perspectives that are out there. But the fact is, God created us, even in, before evil, before sin, to work hard and heartily as to the Lord. So we need to view work from a biblical perspective. And let, let me just say this about work. All work... All work, at least work that is not uh, morally contrary to Scripture, all work ha- is good. All work that is not morally contrary to Scripture is valuable. I think many of us in the church, especially in the church, we sometimes compartmentalize our lives and, and we view kind of work and ministry as two separate things, right? We have our, we have our sacred work, and, minist- and we call it ministry, and then we have our other work, which is basically something we have to do to put, get a paycheck and get food on the table and to pay for bills and all the other kind of things. But I think these two categories would be a false understanding or perspective of work. In other words, work must be, I think we need to view work in regards to, in the same way that we regard missionaries. Here's what I'm getting at. Being a missionary is more of a mindset than it is a geographic location. You know, the, the, the history of the church is like, oh, I'm a missionary. Me and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be flying somewhere and, 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 and habitating with a, a people group that are not like me, and, uh, and we're going to bring the gospel to a place that has not yet gone, which is true. That is being a missionary. But that's not just, that's, a, that's one version of it. That is one uh, outlet or aspect of it. But a missionary is one in which 
you have the mindset of being a witness for Jesus Christ. In other words, you are all missionaries. You realize that? Every single one of you has been tasked with an ambassador role to King Jesus to be a missionary wherever God has ultimately placed you. Now, you may be called to Timbuktu. You may be called to go, just be faithful in Port Angeles, Washington. Both matter. I think in the similar manner, work for God is much more of a mindset or an attitude than it is vocation. You see, some people, I believe that some people in ministry are merely serving themselves, while other people that maybe have a trade or a vocation of another kind sometimes are more used by God than others. So it's not just about are you in ministry or you're not in ministry. It's a mindset. Why you do what you do matters. So the question is, what is your perspective in your work? What is your attitude in your work? I've always remembered this illustration uh, because I had to remind myself of it too. Um, it's the illustration, I've shared this a, a while back, uh, about three bricklayers. Some of you might recall this. There's a man that comes up to the, these three bricklayers and comes up to the first bricklayer and, and he says, kind of, a, kind of a dumb question, I guess, what are you doing? And the, the first bricklayer says, I'm laying bricks. He's like, oh, good to know. He walks up to the second bricklayer and says, what are you doing? And the bricklayer says, I'm laying bricks to build this wall. Oh, okay. So you're, you're not just laying bricks, but you're laying bricks to build a wall. And he goes up to the third bricklayer and he says, what are you doing? And the bricklayer says, well, I'm laying bricks to build this wall so that we might build a church in which the church, the body of Christ might gather and worship God. What am I getting at? All three are doing the exact same thing, yet one understood why he was doing what he was doing. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of attitude. It's a matter of being faithful to what God has you. You could just be laying bricks or you could be laying bricks so that one day God's people might gather and worship him. And all of a sudden it makes laying bricks less mundane, a little less tedious and very worthwhile because there's an eternal vision for it. I love what Paul says in Ephesians Chapter 2, he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should just walk in them. The question I have for you is, what is the work that God has called you to do? And I'm not talking about ministry versus work. I'm not making that dichotomy here. What is the work that God has called you to do so that you might glorify him as an ambassador of King Jesus? For me, I eventually realized it was the calling to be a pastor, something I resisted for many years. But for you, perhaps it's 
representing King Jesus faithfully on the high school campus or at OCS or in your home if you're homeschooling. For you, it might be going, I'm going to be the best city worker possible. For you, it might be, I'm going to be an incredibly hardworking, God-fearing, God-honoring carpenter. You see, it's not a matter about what you do. The question is why you do it and who you are doing it for. It's not necessarily what you do, but why you do it and who you are doing it for. It, it is worthwhile to ask the question, God, am I doing what you have called me to do? Am I fulfilling those things? Am I walking in those things that you have prepared beforehand? We were all created to work, but not everyone was called the same, to the exact same kind of work. The question is, what, in what way has God called you? How has he equipped you? How has he gifted you? And what kind of favor has he given to you so that you might, as a faithful ambassador, work heartily as to the Lord? We're going to go into communion here. I just want to say this real quickly. You might be wondering, Aaron, you didn't even talk about the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the four rivers, There's a lot of text in there that you didn't even address. That is true. And we will address those when we get to Genesis chapter 3 because they'll be very pertinent to what, especially the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We will unpack that when we get to Genesis chapter 3. But right now, I want us to transition into a time of communion. Let me just say it in this way. We've been talking about this, but for the sake of reminder... The Bible, the Bible history begins with this incredibly beautiful place or paradise called the Garden of Eden, right? From the very beginning, everything is good. It is perfect. There is nothing, in some ways you'd be like, nothing could go wrong. The Garden of Eden, not just a habitable world where everything is functioning well and perfectly, but there's this place of paradise. And yet Adam and Eve sin. And it corrupts everything. But what's interesting is when you read all the way through Revelation, especially when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, there's another garden mentioned. There's another garden where there's a, there's a, a glorious garden city where there'll be no more sin and no more death. That's how it all began, and that's how it'll all end. The question is how did everything end so well? And that actually initiates or kind of brings us, there's actually a third garden. There's the Garden of Eden where it all began. There's a garden city that is promised, but there's the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is where Jesus both surrendered to the will of his Father as well as he willingly laid down his life for the sins of this world. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus really gives us a a back-to-Eden promise. Through Jesus, there's another garden awaiting us where we might 
fully, completely, and perfectly walk and talk with our Creator. And where sin will be no more.